Welcome to the Great Lakes Equity Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will highlight organizations and individuals in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. This is the sixth episode in the Centering Equity and Educator Effectiveness podcast series. Each episode in this series will focus on demonstrating equitable practices in curriculum, instruction, or the learning environment. This is the third of a three-part series with Dr. Muhammad Khalifa. We will continue discussing centering equity and culturally responsive and sustaining learning environments for Muslim students. In parts one and two of this series, Dr. Khalifa provided a summary of the complex global history of the experience of Muslims and stressed the importance of grounding equity work for Muslims in an understanding of the diverse and varied lived experiences Muslim students bring to the classroom. In part three, we will discuss ways that schools can and should engage in students' communities. You know, I read an article that you had written called Understand and Advocate for Communities First. It appeared in um, Parents and Schools in April of last year, so April of 2015. Um, in that article, you presented two models uh, for school-to-community relationships um, that might help educators become knowledgeable about and advocate for community-based interests. Um, and I know that, you know, throughout this interview, you've talked to us a lot about um as you said, extending anti-oppressive work into communities. Um, the two models that were presented in that article, have you, have you sort of described them here already? Or are there, um, could you maybe uh, describe to us or give us a, an overview of what those models look like? Yes. Okay. So let me, let me just clear up a couple of assumptions about this article. One, one assumption. So advocacy is, is, is clear in both of the models that I listed in that paper, mm-hmm. advocating for community uh, based goals. And one thing that I think uh, school leaders and school districts don't understand is that in order to be culturally responsive and in order to advocate for community-based goals, that you have to be well, well-versed in each of the cultures that you do that yeah. uh, with. And I don't agree with that. I do think that it is to the benefit of school leaders uh, and district leaders to be immersed in the, in the, in the communities that they serve. I do. Um, however, as long as you're willing to put structures in place that will allow for this, the leader herself or himself does not have to be the actual person doing the work, but the, the, the structure of the school has to do so. And so one example that I write about uh, is, a, is, a, is a man, his name is uh, Joe Doolin, I write about him in a lot of my work. He was in Ann Arbor. He passed away seven years ago. Uh, he was a great model. Um, I'm so happy that he shared over the course of a number of years his legacy and his work with me. Uh, and he, he allowed me to see how he served community. And uh, so um, in that particular community, he talked uh, about uh, an incident that happened. And um, I cited it in some of my work where uh, individuals who are five, five African-American boys got some, some attention, were accused of stealing uh, a man's possessions uh, at a local park. And they were arrested. They were all under the, underage. They were arrested. Uh, and the man, uh, nothing was stolen from him, obviously. I think he misplaced it or something like that. But the, to make a long story short, um, they were arrested. They were questioned. No Miranda rights were read. Uh, uh, they were dealing with minors, and they weren't, they weren't dealt with. And so 
the black community in this particular town erupted. And the black community uh, staged several protests and several um, uh, sit-ins and dialogues that fought for the rights of these children who had been sort of oppressed in this in this incident by uh, in this incident by police uh, who were called to the scene and immediately just accepted the the version of what happened that from this elderly white gentleman uh, he had misplaced all of his own things and I think just accused these black boys of stealing them and so the community came and so Joe was at the forefront of those protests and he was a school principal now. Again, whether or not Joe was uh, up to date on the latest hip hop fads and whether he on the latest lingo of young black boys, none of that really mattered as much as number one, giving them a space to do whoever they were. So it's interesting when we say that we want to create a space for for all people, such as Muslims and African Americans and Indigenous. What we really mean is we want them to come into a school space and we want them to change who they are in order for them to be successful. We claim on the front end that it's about academics and how they achieve. But on the back end, though, we really absolutely expect for them to change their appearance, how they talk, how they dress, and everything else in order for them to comfortably be in school spaces. And one of the things that Joe did is that he, A, Create, allow this space to exist. He said, look, if they're not here, I can't help them. That, and that's very true. What does a kid saying his pants and wearing a hat have to do with him passing a math test? Not really much. And so, and then two, uh, one of the things, what Joe did is he got out in the community and whatever was important to the community, he aligned himself with that. He did not co-opt their struggle. He was a part of the struggle. He aligned himself with that and he would go and advocate for whatever was important to the community that he was serving. And I think that this central role of advocacy is, is, is one of the key ingredients. And in one model, it shows up at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he did that also. But in another model, which is the example that I just cited for you with the kids being arrested in a local pool, it shows up in the middle. So he kind of established the rapport with them. He knew what the issues were. He had his finger on the pulse. So when an issue popped up, he was right there. So obviously, when a man like this comes to the school and he says, look, I need to keep your kids for a few hours after school, that's not a fight with parents. They completely trusted them and entrusted him with their children. And so um, there are other models as well. But if, if, if the rapport with the community is there, if the advocacy for community-based goes, for example, I've never seen, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I've never, I'm here in the Twin Cities, I've never seen a school principal go advocate for uh, the, 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 these young Somali boys and youth that have been being, being increasingly caught up in this terrorism business here in the Twin Cities. It's becoming a major problem. I've never seen an administration. See, at some point, all administrators are going to have to decide, do I want to make sure that my job is 100% secure or do I want to advocate for what I, in my heart of heart, believe is right? And so these young men uh, are not being well mentored. Uh, some of them I uh, have been caught up. They're already disaffected in school. And then there's even a bit of entrapment going on, too, in, uh, in many cases across the country. 
Uh, and so where are the school leaders? I'm not going to get political about what's going on there because it's a very complex situation. Uh, and again, I'm not Somali, and it's probably best for Somali to speak about this. But my question as the school leader uh, prepared is, where are the school leaders advocating for the uh, guidance for, or for the uh, rights or for the protection of people in the communities that are served here in the Twin Cities? Uh, North Minneapolis, resources are moving out of some areas. Prices are becoming, uh, of homes are becoming far out of the reach of the black families that were situated there. Where are the school leaders on this issue? In, in the Rondo area of St. Paul, which is being gentrified as well, uh, where are the school leaders? I, I'm here and I don't see where the school leaders are at advocating for community-based causes. And, and every the migrant workers, there's a migrant uh, working here and people are being uh, expatriated out of the country uh, in ways that are not healthy for families. Where are the school leaders on that issue? So we're, we're living in a political world and for us to remain silent as school leaders and as policymakers, well, we're not really silent. We're just taking a, a position. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes our silence is siding with oppression. And so, therefore, we have to center this role of advocacy because if you remain silent, you're advocating, but you just might not be advocating for the right thing. Yep. That is powerful, Dr. Khalifa. Thank you so much for sharing all of that all of that. Um, I, you know, I suspect that there are different pressures that might um, contribute to, to school leaders silencing. So I really are staying silent and I really appreciate your example of a school leader who, who didn't. Those are all of the questions that I had for you today. Are there any, you know, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us and our listeners? Um, so I just would like to reemphasize that um, anti-Muslim bigotry, I, I, if, if they leave with nothing else, they need to understand that anti-Muslim bigotry is virtually unchecked. And when a kid makes a clock and takes it to school and then is accused of being a terrorist, when leading contenders for the Oval Office presidential candidates suggest that we have to have identification cards, my, 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 uh, I have uncles that fought in Vietnam and Korea. My grandfather was a World War II vet. And my family name, before my father changed it, was Davis. And it's because Jefferson Davis, leader of the Confederates, owned part of my ancestors, okay? And so for you to suggest now that I have to get an identification card because I'm an American Muslim, just, and, and I'm an academic and that um, bothers me, just imagine the impact that that has on Muslim children in school who are virtually uh, defenseless. They don't have a defense to that. When, 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 when uh, these kind of things operate in the news um, and this discourse makes its way uh, into classrooms and into schools, these, these little kids are indefensible and it puts them in a very, very, very uh, awkward and very painful place. And so the most important thing I would say for school leaders and for educators to, to, to keep aware of is that um, bigotry changes shape quickly. Um, it, uh, it's difficult to recognize at some point, but it's not for Muslim students. Uh, supremacy of some groups, it's not always in the same place. And if you're not doing anything about anti-Muslim 
this is the most important thing. I'm working my way up to this. If you're not doing anything right now in your school building about anti-Muslim bigotry and anti-Muslim bias, then you are a part of the problem. There's no other way around that. All right. Well, thank you so much um, for speaking with us today. I'm excited and happy and thankful and appreciative that you all are doing this kind of work out here. All right. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks. You too. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by the Great Lakes Equity Center, directed by Gail Cosby. To find out about other Great Lakes Equity Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Great Lakes Equity Center website at www.greatlakesequity.org. The Great Lakes Equity Center is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the six-state region of Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or by any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Great Lakes Equity Center. Finally, the Great Lakes Equity Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Principal Investigator Dr. Kathleen King-Torius and Co-Principal Investigators Dr. Brendan Maxey and Dr. Tushun Nguyen for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support Region 5.